IOU Ring is a new asynchronous API to enable fast and efficient system calls in the Linux kernel. It promises faster user land programs that make heavy use of file system IO on Linux for all applications, not just databases. It's targeted towards the file system IO, but the interface is generic enough that you can use it for any sort of IO, whether it's network IO or, or other type of non-block IO. I think it's a very interesting solution to a problem that I didn't know existed. And I can see now potentially the effects that having slow file IO has on a person who just writes normal programs. I try to keep things as much as possible in memory and then flush out to disk at the end when I'm finally done. But maybe that's just a consequence of this conditioning that the programming languages and the standard libraries and whatever don't necessarily encourage me to interact with the kernel so easily. Hi, this is Will. I'm a YC alum and independent researcher who has worked across e-commerce, cryptocurrency, and financial industries. And I'm Sri. I'm a YC alum and a research engineer focused on natural language processing for search. Welcome to the Technium, where we talk about the edge of technology and what we can build with it. An optimistic look at the road ahead. We're two guys discussing edgy, fringe, or overlooked technologies over a couple of drinks. Our show has four segments. First, we give a high-level outline of what the technology is. Then second, we talk about what it can do today. Then we let our imagination and optimism take over and see how the world would change if the technology was readily adopted everywhere. And lastly, if we believe in this future, how can we take a position on it? Well, we can't be experts in everything that we cover. So if you got insights on that topic, let us know in the comments. And be sure to check out our audio versions on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can go about your day as you listen. First, in the spirit of uh, discussing over drinks, what, what are we drinking today? Today, I've got Nitro Pepsi. It is Whoa. a nitrogen-infused Pepsi Cola. So, yeah. Wow, the the food lab guys are really amping it up. I thought they only worked at Taco Bell, but apparently, well, I guess Taco Bell is a subsidiary of uh, Pepsi, right? So they all got the food labs because they had the Dorito Crunch Taco, which I was like, why didn't people think of this before? (laughs) Yeah, it's getting wild out here. Yeah. And then I I got some uh, banana and almond butter protein smoothie. I don't know if this is going to fill me up or not, but uh, (laughs) we'll see what happens here. Do you know what we're talking about today? Uh, I hadn't heard about it until you told me about it. Uh, and so, yeah, why don't we, uh, why don't you tell us? Right. So today we're going to be talking about IOU Ring. IOU Ring is a new asynchronous API to enable fast and efficient system calls in the Linux kernel, especially promising for file system reads and writes. It's created by Jans Axbo. I think that's how you pronounce it at Facebook. It promises faster user land programs that make heavy use of file system IO on Linux uh, for all applications, not just databases. Um, and it's, it's particularly targeted towards the file system IO, but the interface is generic enough that you can use it for any sort of IO, whether it's network IO or, or um, other type of uh, non-block IO. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Like you are not a kernel hacker and neither am I. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> despite the beard, right? So, but yeah. yeah, I think there was a small bit of apprehension on my part because I'm like, oh, am I going to know what I'm talking about here? And so, to a degree, I think a lot of this stuff is generally one layer below where we usually work. And usually it's my opinion that occasionally we should drop down here to see what's going on because how can we talk about the edge of technology without covering things that are a little bit outside our wheelhouse. So with that, we're going to venture forth to talk about uh, as much as we know, and we will try very hard to be specific about what we know and what we don't know here. Yeah, I will say I was also hesitant about going down this deep in the level of abstraction, but I've convinced myself that this is still on brand and still important for us to discuss uh, because if you remember our discussions about small talk, which is a very, very high level language, uh, the all of those cool capabilities that we talk about uh, at, at the level of you know programming languages and, and even above that uh, application programming really stem from uh, the OS level. So I think there's a there's a holistic view of of computers which includes like even the lowest level interfaces. And so I think actually uh if we if we delve into this we'll see how it can really change uh the way that people write programs higher up the stack as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're you're lucky so far that we haven't dived into any uh, edge of technology for hardware because there is where we really don't know <laughs> nearly as much. I had a electrical engineering degree, undergrad degree. I really don't know that much about hardware, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So maybe maybe our uh, viewers will will see us struggling with a hardware episode in the near future. But for now, we're just going a little bit deeper in the stack. Let's talk about like what motivates this new Linux interface in the first place, because um, I think Linux has traditionally had system calls that were synchronous and blocking, and that was okay for most of the time. And so mm -hmm. traditionally in, in Linux, like system calls from user land programs are slow. And for those of us that aren't as familiar with like kernel, like basically the OS separates out the, the kernel space like kernel processes different as a separate thing from uh, user land program. So anything that's like core to the US is in the kernel and things that are applications that you run are usually called uh, user land programs. And so usually like these uh, system calls from user land programs are slow, whether it's print to the screen, access a network, uh, read some files or like whatever it is that you need the OS's help for. And the data from the user land program needs to be copied into the kernel space. And then the call is blocked until the kernel returns with the answer. Then that answer then needs to be copied back into user land. And so there's a lot of copying going on as well as this whole blocking uh, shenanigans. And so Linux has tried to have different uh, async interfaces for a long time before IOU ring came around and none of them felt quite right. But so a lot of programs that needed async IO, they basically implemented a thread pool in the runtime. For example, programming languages such as Go, 
uh, is well known for being uh, asynchronous. But how do you do that when the system calls in the kernel are blocking? So what they do is they implement a thread pool in the runtime to task switch while waiting for the system call to return. So you you follow me so far with what's going on, right? That's the state of Linux. Like, uh, were you as surprised as I was that like most of the system calls were blocking? Because I I guess like since I don't delve down here all the time, I was a little bit surprised by that, especially because the interfaces provided in the application level, like programming languages, like we have async await and promises and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Those are all available to us, and so I was a little bit surprised by that. Yeah. I knew that there were non-blocking IO for network sockets because I had delved a little bit into that before, but I didn't know that that set of, of system calls did not apply to most local file reads and writes. And so I wasn't surprised that uh, system calls are blocking, I but I knew that there was async IO supported in Linux. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems like it comes with a bunch of caveats and, and limitations such that it's, first of all, not applicable to uh, file system calls. And second, even the async interfaces to file system calls is, is still can be blocking in many cases. Yeah, right, right. And so what Shri is talking about is the async interface called AIO. And it's supposed to be an async interface so that user land programs can do async system calls. The problem with this is that it has an annoying habit of falling silently back to being synchronous. And it's not exactly clear when it does that because it does it silently. And so, for example, like I've only found... I found a, a non-exhaustive list, in which we'll put in the show notes about it. Like one, like you submitted buffer I/O, but your read isn't ready in the cache, or if the write cache is full, then it'll fall back to synchronous. And so there's there's any number of these things that make it difficult to deterministically figure out whether your intended async call will perform as expected. But um, <laughs> basically you're driving from the backseat and giving instructions to somebody that might follow your direction sometimes, but most of the times can't comply directly. So I so, see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that's kind of like one, one interface. And then there's uh, another interface called uh, ePoll, and it's... It's a different kind of async model. It's called a readiness model rather than a completion model like IOU ring. And the short of it is just that you have to put in the async call and the data, and then the system will notify you when data is ready. And when data is ready, then you go and read the data out as opposed to a completion model, which is what IOU ring has, where you send the system call to the kernel and then when it's ready, the data is already in the buffer that you provide. Granted, for IOU ring, you have to pre-allocate the buffer that it can put into, I believe. And we'll describe the exact mechanism, but the data is already ready there for you. You don't have to read it out again. Hmm. So is that clear of like that was the state of the art before IOU ring came along? And so that's why like people didn't really like the async IO and ePoll was mostly for network requests and not for the file system because the network, yeah. there 
is plenty of times that things outside your system's control would uh, put it into a state where you have to wait for something. But with yeah. the file system, like it doesn't quite make sense for something to be ready to be read, especially if you don't know what the offset into the file is yet. Yeah, so that makes sense. So I let me try to tie it back to what it means that the async interface has this limitations. Basically, yeah. the purpose of asynchronous interfaces is that you have a a process and you it wants to do something that is potentially slow, right? So write to uh, some either write to a socket or write to a file or whatever it is. And so the i the ideal case is it says here's this thing, go do it. And meanwhile, I'm going to do process some other stuff in the thread that I have. And so mm -hmm. I don't block on this very slow, expensive thing. Instead, my process uh, is capable of handling other incoming data or whatever it needs to be done. Uh, but the problem with this AIO, it seems, is that because it sometimes falls back to synchronous calls, it almost seems like you can't reliably, like you don't have reliable performance. Like sometimes yeah. depending on the state of the system or how much data you write to it or the, the speed of the data that you're writing to it, it could, you could have these huge spikes where you're now waiting because you're in this blocking mode. Yeah. And apparently it's mostly databases that use this interface is my understanding. And, and developers really dislike the interface because according to Linus Torvalds, I mean, the database uh, programmers have no taste and they're the ones that came up with this interface. So <laughs> um, I see. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so, so then it sounds like because of this interface being so cumbersome, it's underutilized like this async, yeah it's it's write, mostly for, used mode. for databases and like other applications don't really use this for that for for a variety of reasons i guess one of which is that it falls back to blocking so readily yeah 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 so this it, it makes sense to me it doesn't sound like a great state of affairs uh and i was familiar with epol because i at one point in my life was working on some uh, real-time WebSocket type stuff. And so mm -hmm. uh, it was relevant to this. And uh, But it's interesting. I, I had thought for the longest time that you could use ePoll for files, but it does make sense that there's a difference between network sockets and files because network sockets, there's something on the other side which could just be waiting and have nothing to tell you for indefinite periods of time. Right. And mm -hmm. so the purpose of ePoll is that you're now watching over this huge set of sockets and you only respond when there's stuff to do. Uh, but it seems like that's not the access pattern for the file system and for yeah. disks and things. Like it's it's ready. It's just it might take some time to fetch the data and page it in or, or whatever it is. Uh, it's not like the disk is are 
unresponsive for some arbitrary period of period of time and you need to be yeah like like the network right yeah Yeah, yeah. like the network because like it's the epoch doesn't accept file system storage uh, file system storage files as io at all like uh, my understanding is that writing to file in Linux doesn't block indefinitely, so ePoll doesn't really help much there. Like, you, you don't really need its readiness signal mechanism. Like, yeah. uh, and so as for reading, it's hard to know when a file is ready unless it already knows like what which offset to read from. And so, yeah. so I guess the these combination of things make ePoll not a great fit for file system reads. So, so then user lane programs and application programs are left with blocking calls in which they need to implement a thread pool on top of it to simulate async uh, calls to the user on top. Oh, interesting. So then basically what they do is they spawn a a thread that is making these blocking calls, Mm -hmm. but then to the, I guess the main thread, it pretends like it is an async interface. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess that wasn't clear when I was talking about thread pools earlier. I'm I'm glad that we're we're clearing this up. Okay. Yeah. Does does that make sense? Yeah, because like you can't rely on the the OS to do this for you and OS processes are too heavyweight. And so effectively a lot of these programming languages and runtimes are implementing this up in user land. Interesting. So that actually means that potentially there's a limit to how many files I can keep open because otherwise there's a one-to-one correlation between these threads and uh, files, or I guess it's a pool model. So it's a pool. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pool. So you, people are recycling these things uh, when, when they're not being used. Okay. Gotcha. So then uh, the, the two main things is like, well, so not to mention the hard interface, but also the copying that's going on. Uh, in AIO and ePoll. And so IOU ring comes comes in and does away with both. So you not only have an interface that's comparatively easy to use is one. Two, it doesn't do any copying. And three, it's an actual async interface. Uh, There aren't like weird edge cases in which you need to figure out as gotchas to avoid and sidestep in order to get interface. And it seems a little magical that they were able to come up with the design that was able to satisfy these orthogonal constraints. And so how do they do it? We're not going to go into too much detail, but um, the short of it is that they yet use another set of ring buffers. A ring buffer is basically just a place in memory in which there's no beginning or end, and you only know where to read and write based on pointers into that ring buffer. And so uh, you can have ring buffers where you detect the end, but my understanding from the IOU ring paper is that these ring buffers are powers of two and it just uses the natural rollover of an integer to roll uh from the end back to the beginning does that make sense because like when you overflow you just throw away the top bit and you just kind of modulate back to the beginning again yes that yeah that makes sense yeah so there's two ring buffers in iou ring and they effectively act as cues and so one cues aka slash ring buffer is called the SQ or the submission queue. And then one is the CQ, which is the completion queue. And so the submission queue is where messages go from user land program 
to the kernel. And so there, the user land program, the application is the producer and the kernel is the consumer. Whereas the completion queue, the flow of data goes the other way, where the kernel is the producer of data and then the application is the consumer of data in the CQ. With me so far? Yes. So the ring buffer also, from my understanding, is in a place, is in a memory space which is accessible to both the kernel right. and the user yes. program. So then you yep. don't have to copy between the two. Also. Right, right. And and so that that's a key thing. Like that's one of the key thing. It seems like, oh, it's strange. How can you um, implement these zero copy sort of things a- across the, the user land kernel boundary? Well, it's available. I think it's called Nmap, if, if I'm not mistaken. Somebody correct me if that's wrong. But basically, you're able to create shared memory between the kernel and the application. And so if you write in there, both the current user and and the kernel would be able to uh, read from there. And so for each ring buffer, there's only one writer. And so I think that probably simplifies the problem a little bit, but also they have mm-hmm. what's called uh, read barriers and write barriers so that you don't get these, um, you, you don't overrun or have these weird, I guess, edge cases or uh, race conditions. Um Wait, so, so what happens what happens if I write to these ring buffers so fast that I I flood the the buffer? Yeah, and, yeah, I think you're you're not supposed to be able to do that. Like from the paper it was that the CQ the completion queue is supposed to be twice the size of the submission queue uh just in case, but like it's a little bit of the responsibility of the application not to like overflow it is is one and so the this i'm completely unfamiliar with but apparently there's something called memory ordering in which uh, i guess it's where when you're using iou ring you have to set the like a do a read barrier call and a write barrier call where the read barrier call ensures that the previous writes are visible before doing any subsequent memory reads and it sounds like it's almost like a wait so like wait until all the previous writes are visible before you start doing like memory reads and then there's also another call called write barrier and then that means that you order this write after previous writes and so i guess it's a way to order the uh, what you do to the memory, whether it's reading or writing, so that you don't get these like weird things where, like, because it's a ring buffer, like you get some odd things that are going on when you're reading and writing in there. Um, but to note, uh, one more note: the because it's an async interface, the results from your system calls can come back in the completion queue in any order. And so there's basically a field that you can use to associate your call in the submission queue with the result in the completion queue. But but yeah, that, that's effectively what, what I'm trying to get at. That despite the fact that it's a ring buffer, there's some software uh, precautions and guardrails in place so that you don't do mm-hmm. funky things in the shared memory between the kernel and the user space. Okay, that makes sense to me. But I am but a simple high-level script kitty. 
Uh, my my beard is is aren't, aren't we all? Yeah, our beard is so short. Our so beard is short. so short. Yeah, yeah. It needs to be several feet longer for me to really really grasp this thing. But if I look at it from a certain lens, I kind of see the appeal because if you go all the way back, rewind to blocking system calls, you can kind of think of the user and the kernel as being in this stack relationship where you have your user at the higher level of the stack and the kernel at the lower level of the stack. And when you make a system call, you kind of call in, you call down into the kernel and you wait for it to do stuff and then it sends its results up, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And in that meantime, while the processing is happening down in the kernel, your user program can't do anything. Uh, But... If you squint a bit and squint a lot, uh, the IOU ring kind of looks like uh, the user land and the kernel are two peer uh, objects or actors. And what they have is a shared mailbox between them into which they communicate through this message passing model where the user Mm -hmm. land says, hey, I want you to do this thing please do it at some point. And then the kernel says, okay, I'm going to go do this thing on a separate timeline. And when I have the result, I'm going to send the message back to the user land uh, process with, okay, hey, here's the data that you asked me for. And yeah. so if you look at it this way, the the user and the kernel are kind of peers where the kernel is just a special object or actor that has privileged yeah. access to devices. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, <laughs> we can go into this later, but perhaps you can write an entire OS just based on the Erlang actor model using this sort of thing. I, I <laughs> that's just me talking out of my butt, but I mean, um, cause I, I don't know the first thing about everything that's required, but I mean, if this is what you need for async, then, you know, maybe that would be something useful or interesting for people to jump on. So, but I don't know if people would do that nowadays. Only the Urbit guys are crazy enough to rewrite everything from scratch. So we'll need to find (laughs) another pocket of completely uh, ambitious and crazy people to to try to rewrite all that from scratch. But yeah, yeah, effectively, you're right. Like it's it's a way where it's a shared mailbox between the user and the kernel to be able to put messages in and then get messages back. And so... So one, this solves the copying problem. Two, uh, because you just put it in and you can fire and forget, it's completely asynchronous. And then there's the default mode is that you get an interrupt from the kernel to say, okay, I'm done with what uh, I'm doing. You can go fetch it now. And so when you go and do that, unlike the readiness model that we described before with ePoll, like you don't have to then subsequently like read bytes out. Like the, it's already in memory for you to use in the completion ring buffer. And so you might copy mm-hmm. it out to do something else with it or like move it somewhere else, but effectively like you can operate it on, like you, you have it right there and then. Um, so that's the zero copying part. And, and then the other thing is, the interface for uh, IOU ring is relatively simple. Uh, I mean, like there's a setup call where you put 
entries into the submission queue. And then there's another one where you read it out. I think there's only two or three calls, but there's a lot of different structures and options that you put into it. And so for those of us that don't want to like fiddle with a lot of that, the Jans, I think it's name, Jens, Jans, I would assume it's Jans, <laughs> but um, it's, he's, he wrote a library so that it's kind of a high level wrapper the porcelain, if you will, above this plumbing that we're discussing over here. And so so I think that that's, those are the three things that IOU ring addresses, the copying, the bad interface, and then the async nature. And so that that's how it's able to achieve it with this double ring buffer design. Nice. That is pretty cool. I think that the, what would the effect for the end user be? Would it be that programs are just writing faster and reading faster from the disk? Like things are just snappier for uh, file Uh, file bound programs? Yeah. Presumably for IO bound programs, uh, things should be snappier. And so one of the applications, I mean, a lot of the web applications that we interact with have databases that back them. And usually they're made fast by throwing caches in front of them. And so presumably if databases can be faster, you can delay when you have to put in caches. So the end effect for users should be that for IO bound programs where you read and write to disk a lot, um, it should be a lot faster. Maybe like a more immediate one would be like people that work with gigantic media files, like say Adobe Photoshop or like whatever the Final Cut Pro, like the movie editing people, they don't have to like sit around and wait for, for file reads and writes. And so maybe like, I I mean, it should be a lot faster for that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so, so I guess like moving on to the second segment of our podcast, like what does it let us do that's new? Like what's the new thing that we can build? Um, <clears throat> I think one of the interesting things that I saw was that you can chain the IO calls together in the submission queue. And so you can kind of make your own mini data pipeline there. And so I wonder if they'll, that'll have effect. Um, on ETL pipelines because a lot of times they have to read a bunch of data and then stuff it onto disk. And so there's there's things that I imagine you could possibly do there. Um, and then I also saw that there is a project called IOU Ring Spawn in which the guy's working on faster build systems. And we all know how irritating it is to sit around waiting for the continuous integration system to finish your build so that, you know, like I I... I had a colleague that used to work at Google and she had the habit of having multiple clones of the repo on her um, machine so that she can, while one is like compiling or whatever, doing stuff, she can work in the other repo. I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. Okay. Because you would presumably like switch branches, but because like when you switch branches, you might still have things that are like not yet committed and like she just didn't want to deal with that. So she just cloned multiple copies and would just work between them. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I thought that IRU ring had plans also to support not just file IO, but uh, to support other types of 
mm. uh, system calls as well. So that it yeah, could yeah, just become definitely. a unified interface for right. It's, anything. It's like the transformers that we mentioned uh, in a previous episode where transformers are these, uh, uh, I guess, AI model? What would you mm-hmm. call it? What is a transformer? Yeah, like a building like block. An AI, right. Yeah, building block for AI. It's been a unifying force in the AI world. So too, I think... Uh, IOU ring can be because it's a unified interface for all kinds of IO. It's it's originally meant for like block level IO, but mm-hmm. uh, they designed it to be generic and extensible enough that it could be used for all kinds of IO. Nice. That's that's pretty cool. Uh, so, and our fa- faster build systems are most build systems these days bound mostly by how quickly they can write their compiled objects out to disk? I don't know. That I don't know. But okay. I, I do know that things like make system, like make is is effectively like gluing a whole bunch of system calls together, right? Yeah. Because you're yeah. calling into calling into different programs, possibly as part of like the build steps. And so I mean that that's my best guess. I didn't look too deeply into it, but we'll put that IOU ring spawn in the show notes. Yeah. But I mean at any rate, if you look at your performance profile of a program, as compute gets faster and it's not getting faster at the level at the rate of Moore's law anymore, but it's still getting faster and faster. And it's not like the compute loads are necessarily getting um, harder and harder. So I think that if you look at the the proportion of time on a given program that is spent on file IO versus com- uh, compute bound, um, or like how much of what proportion of your program is IO bound versus compute bound, it seems like the IO is going to dominate, right? Most programs that people write, even compilers, are pretty fast, but they might have to write objects out to disk, read them, and then link them together, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, it's quite possible that the limiting factor is, in fact, file I.O., for even for something like a compiler. Mm, I don't know. That's, that I'm not sure. Because definitely there are like programs that are compute-bound, right? Like games, I think, are compute-bound. They, they typically don't do a lot of I.O., I mean, yeah, games are games MM, are MMORPG, but but uh, I, I would say that there are still like large classes of programs that are compute bound, and so what we're talking about here are the applications that, yeah, I, I guess would be IO bound, like things that are form filling CRUD apps that web developers, uh, like that that you and I cut our teeth on, I guess. Um, so that that's the sort of stuff we're talking about. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, there's, there's like ETL pipelines and yeah, build systems. Yeah, I don't know. Compilers. I, I don't know if they're they. I would think that they're G, like CPU bound, but I could be wrong. I don't know. And so I, I think the the type of things that you can build are are interesting here, uh, because there's different modes that IOU ring allows. Uh, interrupts can be far slower if there's a lot of data to be read. So you can set IOU ring in a polling mode where the user land program just keeps polling the device driver 
And there's also a different mode for kernel side polling so that the kernel will pull the submission queue to check for new entries and consume them. Uh, of course, there's a timeout of like one second or something like that where it'll stop if it's not finding anything. But the fact that you can do this means that you can do IO without making a system, single system call because you just stuff things into that shared memory and the kernel will pick it up and just do stuff, right? So you, you don't actually have yeah. to make that system call at all. Ah, that's interesting. So kind of at the top of your program, you just say, hey, kernel, I'm going to just dump stuff in here every once in a while, read it out and do something with it. And then you, from then on, just keep writing to memory, basically. Yeah, yeah. From then on, you just keep writing to memory. Uh, and obviously, there's a timeout, but but because it won't, this is not like a default setting. But yeah, uh, yeah you, you can do that. So I, I think that these are all interesting things that people are doing uh, today. And so I think the immediate things that people should be able to build are faster databases because databases are, I guess, by definition, very IO bound. Their, their entire job is reading and writing from disk, right? And so I think that's, that's the initial thing. Um, and then uh, were there other type of immediate projects or things that you saw or heard that people are using and building IOU ring with? No, I think a lot of the the immediate use cases I saw were for things like databases. Uh, no, I haven't uh, seen too many other use cases. I see. I I, th I presume that that's because like both of us aren't usually in this world of like we don't attend or watch uh, talks on the Linux Plumbers Conference or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean that that's actually a conference. But yeah, I I think the the as application developers, I, I think this is probably pretty exciting to, to us just that we would get faster stuff with less less complexity down below and we get much better guarantees, right? Yeah. And so uh moving on to the other the the next segment of like what are the second and third order effects? Like what what happens when like ILU ring would be everywhere? Because actually it made it into the Linux kernel already and it's available in the latest Linux kernels for people to use. And so that means that beyond the immediate uses of faster databases, like what do you think the second and third, third order effects will be when it's available everywhere and everybody is using it? Yeah, so I'll draw an analogy to the ePoll and uh, Socket async IO world. So way back when, there used to be a challenge or some kind of benchmark called the C10K challenge. Mm -hmm. And the C10K challenge or C10K problem was this this problem that somebody set forth that whether people could optimize network servers such that they could handle uh, 10,000 concurrent connections on a single machine. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, and this used to be a hard problem because prior to ePoll and this async network IO was available at the kernel level, um, network concurrency was... 
achieved through spawning threads. And so you would have threads or thread pools that would handle uh, concurrent connections and you'd switch between them. And so you'd have software architectures or, or you'd have architectures for network servers uh, similar to Apache, which were a thread-based model. And scaling those was really, really hard. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden, uh, somewhere in the 2010s or something, basically, uh, these network async IO calls made it into the mainstream uh, kernel. And then you were actually able to have event-driven network sockets. Uh, and those propagated everywhere throughout a variety of programming languages. And the C10K problem went away. Now every standard library of almost every single modern programming language was able to have socket uh, interfaces that could handle arbitrarily large number of connections. And mm -hmm. you don't hear about the C10K problem anymore. Yeah. And so I think that it would be interesting to think about what would happen if the same thing happened for file IO, where now with this type of kernel interface, uh, every standard programming uh, language and its standard library will have really fast uh, disk reads and writes. Whereas previously, this was something that needed to be tuned and optimized and was in the purview of specialized database systems. I have a few thoughts on how that could go. But um, yeah, I think generally, uh, it seems like there's some analogy here. Well, so when you say fast, you mean that the throughput is much greater, but there's still like a minimum latency, right? Yeah, the the throughput yeah. being uh, yeah. being greater. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah, uh, that that's a good starting point to think about. Like, uh, effectively, like what what will happen if disk access isn't so expensive? Like, have you seen that comparison of machine time to human time, where they draw the analogy of how much human time? it takes for each one of the um, access times for different levels of cache. Mm -hmm. And so I think L1 cache is like going to the next room. L2 yeah. cache is like going to the other side of the house or something like that. And then mm -hmm. like going to memory is kind of like, what was it? probably like going across the country and coming back or something like that. <laughs> and then, and then the network is like sending something on a ship <laughs> like transatlantic. Uh, I forget, like as yeah. a programmer, I should know these. Actually, That, uh, that was the yeah. point of the article that every programmer should know these, but um, like, I, I forget the details. So, so basically like it's order of magnitude slower, like a lot of these things. And like when like, recently like especially in the what's called uh data oriented programming which is the idea that it's much cheaper to recompute things than to store things and cache them because computers nowadays are just so fast and if you can get things aligned and the l1 l2 caches uh warm and like you can it's much cheaper and faster to just recompute things from scratch than it is to like store the result, put it into memory and then like refetch it all over again. Surprisingly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so I was thinking like it, maybe this brings discs like up to par 
with the rest of the caching system so that it's not just such a gigantic gap. And so as a result, like maybe you don't, you could forego some of these like uh, software techniques that we've uh, trying to do to leverage the uh, the speed of the caches. Of course, it's not going to ever catch up, right? But mm-hmm. effectively, like you can, uh, you can start to do applications that rely on a, a lot of IO without a lot of like trickery. Cause like, I guess databases lean really heavy, heavily on, on B trees. I don't think B trees are going to go away, but um, yeah, like maybe, maybe it would be a lot easier for people to, to write, write these sorts of programs because like before yeah. the days when we had a lot of memory, writing a spell checker was hard, but like with, infinite memory or like gigantic memory like you could write the most ineffective thing it's easy to understand and naive right so you just scan the list because you can fit the entire dictionary in memory so so maybe it's something like that like i guess i'm like talking out loud and talking around it but like yeah would you be like writing a whole bunch of things onto disk i guess like video editing and like video editing is the only thing I can think of for like consumer sort of things where you might be writing a whole bunch of things onto disk. Yeah, you might. Uh, well, ETL pipelines also, which you mentioned before, where you have different processing stages and they write their intermediate outputs out for another to read from. And right. um, I think that you don't, I think that's considered pretty slow and so sometimes you might choose to write your program such that it uh, processes things in memory and then passes it to the next step in memory. Whereas now you yeah. could just use disk almost just as a persistence layer, a free persistence layer. Uh, and and that gives you things like resumability. Like if your program crashed in the middle of processing something, mm, yeah. but you had written this kind of log of events or you had written the data itself then you could just pick back up and resume from there yeah so these etl pipelines they you you, there are streaming systems in which you process a little bit of the data at a time but there are complications that come with this like if you want to do aggregates like how does that work with the sliding window so on and so forth like I, i mean that that's a separate separate episode and whatnot but yeah but uh, i guess the the point is that i guess the summary here is, relates to a dan lu post i think i i read i think it was the dan lu where he was talking about the mythical man month about how fred brooks was very pessimistic about how anything would help reduce the complexity of software and dan lu pointed out that well no, I mean, when you have faster computers, you don't need to have complicated data structures. Like things could just be an array um, mm. and, and you can get things done. And I think that's kind of like what it is here. I think it you could possibly just do simpler things and get similar type of performance without increasing the complexity. Because a lot of times the complexity is in the optimization of something where we want performance that our systems can't quite give us so we find smart ways to reduce the amount of work that we have to do yeah right 
Yeah, actually, so so this relates back to the point I was making earlier with uh, network I/O and network servers. So, in the old days when you were writing a web server, the way that it would work is that you would have you would delegate the responsibility of doing the network I/O to a server like Apache because it was tuned to all the tricks to handle as many concurrent connections as possible. And yeah. then you would keep your program small and only write your business logic in some script or, or whatever. And Wait, so what, what year is this that you're talking about? Is this like the early 2000s? Yeah, basically. Okay, okay. Yeah, early 2000s. And so you would, you would write your, your business logic in some scripting language and it would call, you know, use some interface uh, to call your uh, your business logic, get the output, and then send it down the socket. But you wouldn't actually know anything about sockets. You would just write your business logic this way. Yeah. Uh, then what ended up happening was that because of this async interface being readily available and then incorporated into the standard libraries of most popular languages, you don't really see that model anymore. Like people are not running Apache servers that are serving mm -hmm. their output. Inside, you actually just, right? yeah, you just keep the 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 network I/O as part of your program. Maybe it's abstracted away, but your basically your web server is just a uh, part of your program that is reading and writing from network sockets. You've moved that internally into your program. Uh, Hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, so yeah. So then, does that by analogy then are you saying that we can get the equivalent of persistent memory? I mean, like it, like usually we persist data by writing into a database. But say, like yeah. we don't need the query capabilities of like the full flexible query capabilities of a database. Like we're mm -hmm. just using a data structure. Like we're we yeah. know ahead of time what our write and read patterns are going to be like. And so we choose this specific data structure. Then it might be possible to just use that and then write that directly to disk as a way of persisting it. Yeah, I mean, that's that... basically, yeah. That, I think that's that's the way, where I was going is that, well, yeah. you can now, I wonder how much of the the usage of database is just, I don't know all the tips and tricks to handle persistence. So I'm going to just call out to this other special program that knows how mm -hmm. to persist to disk efficiently. Yeah. Right. Uh, and now that every program gets free, uh, fast I file IO, you can kind of do the same thing where you pull the database, the persistence layer of the database, at least the storage engine of the database mm -hmm. uh, into your program. Yeah, no. like like the equivalent of a, having a key value store inside. I mean, like there's things like RocksDB, which is a key value, embeddable key value store. But you're saying like maybe you can even forego that and just store it directly, like your data structure directly on disk because it's persisted, right? Yeah, basically. Or you could have a query engine on top of that. So I think there's a trend now to have embedded databases that are in process so they're like obviously the sqlite yeah, yeah so SQLite. sqlite is there uh there's another one called duckdb which is a different mm -hmm. type of embedded um a database for analytical workloads uh, different yeah. different access pattern basically but i think that 
for most for for at least many many use cases that uh people might currently be using a special database system uh they might be able to move that in process and have a the persistence layer and then maybe a light query engine uh, that just runs in process as a library rather than calling out to a special server. So why would you want to do that? Because that's just more for you to handle. Like, why do you want to drive stick rather than yeah. like automatic, uh, I guess is like, what, what is, cause you have to be as a SQL light for, for this to in some dimension for this to be worth it. Right. Yeah. So I think that it's not like the average, um, programmer is going to be writing the low level uh yeah, yeah, you know, calling yeah. the i i ring, ring or what or whatever the same way that when you're writing in go you don't actually know anything about all the socket level things uh but the go standard library now just has a web server object that you can instantiate and i have a web server that's listening on a port right like that's how so so i guess you're saying well yeah yeah i i, I mean that I guess maybe like programming languages to answer my own question, maybe programming languages would have the capability to serialize and deserialize much faster. And well, I guess it depends on the design of the data structures. Like I, yeah. I know in Python, you can't pickle everything, uh, but, right. and so you have to design in a, in a way that things are pickleable or like serializable. But given that that's the case, that's what you're saying that the yep. underlying mechanism for serialization and deserialization are much faster. Yeah, exactly. So, so I don't know how the interfaces will evolve in the same way that it took a lot of iterations of writing or figuring out how event driven uh, web architectures are, are exposed in uh, in in various programming languages, but I think that yeah, the, the end goal is that your standard library might be able to now provide persistent data structures that persist to disk, uh, and that would cannibalize uh, a large number of use cases that people are now simply using databases for, even though they don't need all of the uh, other bells and whistles that databases come with. Huh. I guess it's like the trend of deconstruction of the database. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I was thinking, well, one, I told the story about how I failed my LinkedIn interview one time when they uh, asked me to implement Hangman. And I just said, well, just write it to a text file. And they were like trying to hit to me that I needed to use a relational database. I mean, I didn't huh. argue with them, but... <laughs> I mean, because like the reason why I picked it was like there was no query pattern that that wasn't a known like unknown ahead of time. So that's right. so I'll just write it to a text file. But um, and and so I think the where was I going with this? Oh oh, so so I guess it's the equivalent. Well, one maybe maybe if IOU ring was well known and this is like a common thing that maybe I wouldn't have failed it. So that's that's a joke. But I I think along the other lines is, um, maybe along the lines of our previous episode, Datomic, which is a functional immutable database. One of the key things of Datomic is that you're able to keep the database as as a local view 
Like, uh, we won't get into it too much. You'll have to watch the previous episode. But when you have the database as a value, you can pass it around anywhere and it'd still stay the same, right? And so uh, one of the the end effect for the application programmer using the Datomic functional immutable database is that the data looks as if it was local. So like the database is not like a separate place that you go and get something. And when you like get it, you don't know if that data is outdated and changed out from under you because it's immutable, right? And so so when you have that, I wonder if the same model could apply in which you have the data locally and some other mechanism to sync. And so you don't actually need the database anymore save like a query language but if you are thinking more like i guess thinking more along of like redis right mm-hmm. redis is effectively like a, a remote data structure storage or something or like in memory yeah. in memory data stru- structure storage so maybe we would have more things that are more like a redis is is i think where i'm like swimming yeah. towards if yeah. that makes any sense because like redis doesn't have typical database access patterns it just relies on the fact that it's a known data structure with specific database uh like data structure patterns and so maybe it would be something like that if, if that makes sense what i'm getting at yeah i think so so basically projecting out or, or to really kind of put it t- together rather yeah. than ha- making a call to a separate process and uh, say, over hey, persist there, this over the there. Complexities of like the uh, transaction, like the the need for transactions and atomic yes. transactions, so that other people aren't changing things out from under you. You have yes. things locally here. Yes, and then and potentially you have some other uh, side process that is responsible for syncing. So it's watching mm-hmm. this persistent data structure and saying, hey, something changed. Let me try to sync it to the network, or or let me something changed on the network on the remote. Let me sync right. it here. But right. as far as your program is concerned, it's just reading and writing from this mm-hmm. uh, data structure, which is persisted locally on some file. Right, and it should be much faster, especially if it involves like the kernel, which uh, is supposed to be good at this stuff. Otherwise, there's no reason to have it around, right? So, yeah. Um, then like you don't need to implement this sort of stuff in user land. You can lean on the kernel to help you with this stuff is, is I guess is what we're getting at. So given that yes. a, you don't need that query language. And so you just want to have that uh, data structure locally accessible, but there's some other mechanism syncing it for you. Yeah, that makes sense. In fact, you could have a query language. You could have a query engine that just runs in process, and but it knows how to traverse the persisted data structure to find mm-hmm. the data that it needs. So yeah, I don't yeah, think you yeah. have to forego necessarily the query language itself. Oh, I guess you don't have to forego, but it's deconstructed. It's not yes. like a database where like everything is comes yeah. together in a vertical package. Like I guess we're unbundling the database, <laughs> right? Yes. To, to quote our previous episodes. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's interesting. I don't know right off the top of my head why that is interesting other than just the obvious thing is that it opens up the possibility for experimentation because you nobody casually start, says, 
hey, let me start a database project and, and writes a whole database server with all the transactional mm-hmm. transactionality and the storage engine and whatever. But I think that bringing the database closer to in-process and treating it like a persistent data structure allows more people the possibility of experimenting with different ways of laying out the data, different ways of querying that data uh, that they otherwise wouldn't. So we might see kind of this explosion of in-process databases uh, or in-process database engines that expose different novel concepts. I almost wouldn't call them database engines because that's more full-fledged. It's like some sort of like deconstructed version. Like if the database was a sandwich, like we would see more of people that only pick the lettuce, right? Or like, like I just want to be a vegetarian. So like you come up with like, what is the, the, the no, no bun burger, the no carbs burger in, in and out. Yeah. It's like a burger between two leaves of lettuce. Like people are (laughs) going to be able to do that because right now the only thing you can do when you order a burger is the whole burger with all the stuff in it. Yeah regardless of like what you need it for, like most people yeah. might just need it for the persistence or they're, they're really leaning on the query engine or, or something like that. Right. Because they don't know, they, they don't have product market fit yet. So they don't know like exactly how they're going to query and access their data or something like that. And so, so like, I think people are going to probably be able to start to pick and choose exactly like what it is they want out of different aspects of the database. And it's not that, and application programmers will write IOU ring directly, but that people that are writing these like specific slices of a database's job will be able to use IOU ring to to ship that to people. So I guess yeah. it's classic unbundling, right? You yeah. only unbundle when like the full thing is too good at its job. It's like exceeding <laughs> like what you needed to do. So you just want to pick out this little slice of it. And then like double down on that for yeah. some other job that you have, like job to be done, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think it'd be pretty cool uh, because you only have, what, like five choices uh, at most of like actual production level database uh, systems like that are free and open source. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it does make uh, the job of like arguing with your coworkers about your stack a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but now, now anybody can write a persistent data structure library with its own query engine, and now you can have so much, so much choice. Right, and so <laughs> you'll end up. Uh, just like the JavaScript world where people write uh, like flowcharts of the path you must take to be a systems level programmer. Yeah, um, right. The proliferation of all the tools that you need to learn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so I, I I think that's that's kind of like one one avenue that people might be able to go down. Um uh, another that kind of piqued my interest was using IOU ring to implement effect systems. Um, and so we have, we've only mentioned effect systems here and there on our episodes, but um, maybe we should do an episode on it. I, I don't know, but yeah. effectively, like, do you, have you heard of effect systems? Uh, do, you, do you know what they are? I've only heard that people mentioned React hooks are kind of like effect systems, but I actually don't know anything about the theory of it. Okay, right. Uh, they're 
typical name is an algebraic effect, but an effect system is basically where in the programming language, you don't get to execute side effects directly. Like you specify a command for a side effect and then the runtime itself will run the side effect for you and choose the right time to do it so that your code stays pure functional and all the dirty side effect stuff is handled by the runtime. That That's effectively what uh, uh, effect systems are. They're a way for the runtime to run side effects for you so that your program can stay pure, gotcha. functionally pure. That, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense to me. So how does that yeah. tie into IOU ring? Right. And so one of the talks that I listened to about effect systems, which I thought was really a great introduction, a far better one than the one that I gave here in the short time, but it took him a long uh, time for him to get there, uh, which we'll put in the show notes by Daniel Spiewik. Uh, I, I munge everybody's name on this show. Uh, <laughs> Anyways, he was talking about how uh, threads were a limited resource on computers for a variety of reasons, and that effect systems worked really well in mapping the side effects, the I.O. sort of computations that you need to do at the application levels and how they mapped to this thread pool of... Uh, things that to manage the async. And so I think that IOU ring could be a very good candidate for implementing these effect systems um, instead of using the the thread pool stuff that we're doing today so that at the higher level, people can use uh, these algebraic effect systems to write their program, uh, write the IO aspects of their programs. So for those of you that haven't looked into it, like you can just think of the effect systems as akin to React hooks. Like that React hooks is partially inspired by algebraic effects. Got you. So so it kind of algebraic effects kind of match the shape of IOU ring in a way mm-hmm. in that basically IOU ring, IOU ring allows you to write these commands to a queue and say, hey, kernel, take care of this for me. Uh, and so algebraic effects are kind of the same thing, just at a higher level of abstraction where you say, mm-hmm. I want to do this thing. I don't care how it gets done. Do this thing for me. And so the you can kind of just tie these two together. And now you have algebraic effects that are making use of this efficient async uh, um async interface it seems like it Uh, like the the affordance of each seems to fit well together i could be making stuff up but as far as i could gather uh they seem to it seems to be a good application Uh, and so that said there aren't a lot of i think there are no mainstream programming languages with effect systems because i think this is one of those things that you can't quite shoehorn in but i don't know java has like all sorts of stuff that lisp had before so like what would it have generics and i don't know options lambdas and all sorts now of lambdas yeah so yeah. i i wouldn't put it past people to shoot try to shoehorn in algebraic effects so i mean like react 
implemented it in user like in the browser user land right yeah right so so i wouldn't put it past people yeah that's interesting i think that also ties into the analogy with network io async network io because the async interface that the kernel exposed ended up bubbling up to the programming language level i think the main or the the language and runtime that popular popularized async network io at least to me and almost everybody else that i know it was node.js Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because yeah, it, the language. Say, oh, we we probably shouldn't end this episode without mentioning Node.js and yeah. it's like reactive pattern with, with with respect to I/O. Yeah, yeah, and so it, because JavaScript had uh, anonymous functions which could serve as callbacks, et cetera, et cetera, it matched very well this async uh, I/O pattern. And then other languages started to realize, hey, async I/O is a good idea. But our language doesn't really support that kind of um, affordance, like a programming language constructs that allow us to make use of this very easily. And so a lot of languages over time have uh, incorporated special constructs like async or await uh, mm-hmm. into uh, into their language. Like now, actually, Python has an async keyword. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they have a whole async IO uh, subsystem uh, to to make use of this. And so I imagine that now having async file IO uh, will will propagate up into the language design level where maybe maybe people access it still through the async and await keywords, but maybe mm-hmm. people will start looking into how to incorporate like effect systems to like better match the uh, affordance that IOU ring uh, provides. Yeah, and remember that IOU ring is targeted. I mean, its reason for being initially was the file system, but the interface is general enough so that it should be able to encompass any sort of IO um, okay. now and in the future. And so I, I would say it's not only for file system IO. So that that's what makes me think that, oh, it would be interesting to tie that into uh, like general effect systems, regardless of what may come out. So you might be use, be able to use it not just to access the network or the file system, but like any sort of devices. So I wonder if you could, yeah, like, I don't know, device drivers or like you, like you had, would have generic device drivers that access these devices and you'd be able to kind of use high level language constructs to do that. Because like right yeah. now, in order to write like a, I don't know, something to access your USB keyboard, let's say, like to, I don't know, the the ones with like the flashy LED lights, like you have to drop down the level, right? Yeah, yeah, right. And so like you can't quite, as far as I know, like nobody's, maybe you can do it in JavaScript. I don't know. I've never tried, but like that's not usually what people would reach for. So maybe if you have these effect systems that tie into IOU ring. I mean, the effect systems are pretty flexible. You can implement a lot of like language level constructs such as like exceptions, um, I believe coroutines, other things with it. And so maybe like that, I'm definitely like talking out of my butt, (laughs) but like that's the section we're in, right? Like like we're we're thinking about the future. And so, so maybe, maybe that's something that would be possible. Like my 
intuition right now says that those two would probably be a good fit. Yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, other than that, I mean, there's the typical run through things that like we've already talked about build systems and ETL pipelines. And I guess the last part is maybe like, just like the things that we touched upon, like, uh, you would be able to build an actor model runtime based on IOU ring. Yeah. I would like to see a language that exposes the OS kernel as a special purpose actor and you just make calls to it. Mm. And maybe the use case for this is uh, there is an actor model runtime for WASM called Lunatic, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the idea is that you can write in any language and this, uh, you can write your actors in any language and they all can interoperate uh, in this Erlang type system where they can send each other messages and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Now, what if these actors want to do things like write things to disk? Well, one way that they can do this is in... In WASM, they have a standard called WASI, which mm-hmm. is uh, an interface for WASM programs to do things like uh, open files and read files and, and whatnot. WASI uh, is typically when you want to run WASM programs on a server, right? As opposed to yes. in the browser. Because yes. typically WASM programs, which we covered in a previous episode, if you want to check that out, WebAssembly, yeah. um, typically WebAssembly programs are meant to be run in the browser, but because of the portability and the sandbox nature of Wizen programs, people are like, well, let's just take a play from JavaScript and let's run this on the server as well. And so that that's that's what we have. And so in order yep. for that to work, you have WASI, which is I think the I web assembly standard interface, I think yep. maybe so system interface. Yeah. Oh system interface. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. that's exactly what it is. Yeah, exactly. So WASI is trying to provide a standardized abstraction for do, basically making system calls to uh, from WASM programs. But maybe another way that you can do this is that you pretend that the kernel is uh, mm-hmm. an actor. One of many actors. One yeah. of many actors. Maybe it's a special actor that is always there as opposed to other actors, which you have mm-hmm. to uh, specify. And right. then you just talk to it over this mailbox, which of course matches pretty well with this ring buffer interface mm-hmm. that IOU ring exposes. Yeah. And so, yeah, maybe that's an alternative to WASI or well, a complement to WASI. Yeah, that's definitely interesting because then. Mm, I mean, like Erling distinguishes between local and remote calls. Like local calls are just functions, but like remote calls are always sent over messages. And so if things are already messages, then you could conceivably have a kernel that is remote on a different machine. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds weird. I I don't know what benefit... You would have unless I mean I guess you would have OS remote and then every box is just empty. 
or the OS can send itself over. But I, yeah, I don't know. But I, I guess like I, I'm not sure why you would want to do that at this moment. Yeah, <laughs> but it seems like it would be possible. Yeah, I think the the main idea is to maintain some type of consistency in terms of your programming environment. Uh, so right now, if you're writing in this actor model, uh, I don't mm-hmm. know who is using a lunatic or whatever, but uh, let's say that you're using such an actor model runtime, then you might have two ways of doing things. One way to talk to your objects that you made, which is mm-hmm. through this message passing interface, and then yeah. another way to talk to the underlying system, which exposes the fact that it's not an actor. You have you're actually making calls mm-hmm. into some lower yeah, low, yeah, yeah. lower level down the stack. But now everything is just an actor, and you just pretend everything is objects that you send messages to. So it kind of simplifies things. Yeah, it's unifying. I mean, like the inconsistency is breeds complexity for sure. I mean, that's why I guess code that deals with date time will never be simplified <laughs> but but uh yeah I, I can see that it, it it does make it like something a little bit more uniform so that you would have just one model to be able to do anything because right now there's this dichotomy between like application level sort of stuff with yeah. like system level sort of stuff like i i admit like i was surprised when i read that uh, Hacker News, which was originally written in Arc, like that Paul Graham didn't use a database. He just wrote stuff out to disk. Um, And then like certain other functions, they were system calls like that I typically would have reached like something else for, maybe a library or something. He's just like, F it, this is a system call. And I, I guess that is... I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm saying that highlights how ingrained the idea of, uh, for me as an application developer, that I would reach for libraries first over system calls. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times for bash programmers, they already live in the world of the OS so they can reach for any sort of thing that is available in the OS. But as an application developer, I rarely go and do something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And so maybe in this way, you can actually stop writing libraries in every language and leverage the underlying OS system call. Yeah, yeah, right. And and, and the the kernel kind of just becomes this peer Rather than this right, rather than thing. specialized wrapper libraries or or other things that are doing that work uh, for you, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so then maybe in such a system, then it would feel more like when you're writing Bash. Do you know? Do you get? Do you get what I'm saying? Like, there's mm. a, like the, what I'm trying to get at is like there's a different feel when you're doing like mainstream programming language like oftentimes like things that are available to you in bash you don't really think about using as an application developer in say python or like ruby or like you might make that system call because you're like eh, but then like you have to do things that are different like in order to read back the i like input Uh, output right yes 
it, so, in, in Ruby. And so whereas like Bash is very, it's got the tools, like you can use the pipe operator. Whereas in like, I remember in Ruby, I have to like make specific things to do like some sort of streaming Right, uh, like up between the different system calls, like that's that's not available. I, I to was me. I was trying to figure out what 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 you meant by Bash has system calls, but I now realize what you're saying is the the main system call that it, that it has that it uses is exec, which says run a <laughs> sub process and get right, the, right. get its uh, input and output from its uh, uh, the respective pipes. Uh, right, right, right. That's yeah. native to Bash, whereas like in other languages, you have to set all that stuff up. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, calling out to subprocesses in most languages is terrible uh because it does expose a weird kind of special interface, interface right? Yeah. 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 And so going back to this like if the kernel was just a peer in which you just put things in the mailbox and like any other object in your system you have to put mailbox in, then that would make it a lot easier. And so maybe you would ha- in this type of system, you would ha- be able to do more sys- admin scripting in addition to application programming. So it would kind of mm. unify the space, right? So yeah. you wouldn't have this dichotomy between people that are doing application level developing and kind of the, I don't know, like Linux administration sort of thing. I don't know if that's what yeah. application developers would want because I know personally I hate doing DevOps. But I would like to know less, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, it is powerful when, when you have it available. Because like for me, like oftentimes I want to have a tool or something. I have to spend forever like looking at like docs on awk or something like that because I just don't do it that often. But if I can use whatever the main programming language to just send messages to the kernel it could be different languages have different ways of constructing that message but it's always like that message to the kernel then that might make it more accessible and easy yeah yeah, yeah. okay i see i see what you're saying yes so basically you can make use of the kernel as well as the other yeah uh, other programs that are available on your os more easily rather than having your OS is some world outside, which is really hard to touch. And then you try well, to do yeah, as much things yeah. inside your uh, user land or your standard library. Yeah, because don't you get the sense that that's the way most programs are written around nowadays? You might have like C libraries or like system call libraries that does the thing that you want. But mm-hmm. then you just reach for some sort of like Python library that like might have implemented it in user land. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And I agree that probably the way that you construct those calls to the kernel might have some syntactic sugar around it so that mm-hmm. you're not n- acutely aware of the fact that you're talking to the kernel. But this, yeah. like the standard library or the runtime is then uh, more enabled to call out to the kernel other than it otherwise would be. Yeah, and so I feel like that that would, I guess that would make us more like Paul Graham, where we just make system calls willy nilly. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure there's historic reasons why you know do one way or the other, but uh, like yeah. I said, that's just to highlight the fact that oh, we we just like my interviewers think that the only way to get like storage is to use a database. Like the only way I think 
to get like some functionality is to reach for libraries rather than system calls. So Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I do think that the low level changes to the OS do end up bubbling up into language design. We saw it with async. The, the uh, law of leaky abstractions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is it, is it leaky? Is it necessarily bad? I don't know. I think that it's, it's, it's also a kind of a forcing function for language design to make use mm -hmm. of these uh, hardware uh, enhancements and hardware enhances. Yeah. And, yeah. So um, yeah, I think it could be a good thing. Like we might see some interesting innovations now. Uh, if you, if you can abstract a kernel, if you can think of the kernel through a different lens than the typical user land kernel separation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean that that's that's a, a long, <laughs> long winding road. Are, are there other things that you've thought of that you saw that we didn't quite cover? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike our usual selves, and, and so th with that, like, how how are you feeling about IOU Ring? Because I know that when we were pre gaming and talking about like what should we cover next, I, I wanted to venture out in this territory. You were a little bit. Uh, more skeptical like how, how do you feel after we did our research and uh, talked through it like do you how do you feel about iou ring i think it's a very interesting solution to a problem that i didn't know existed and i can see now potentially the effects that having slow file io has on a person who just writes normal programs like i mm -hmm. i don't typically reach for the file system uh as a, just an easy thing that i can write to like i might write a file that's true but right. it's not like part of the the key functionality of my whatever program that i'm writing i try to keep things as much as possible in memory and then flush out to disk at the end when yeah. i'm finally done uh but but maybe that's just a consequence of this conditioning that I, the programming languages and the standard libraries and whatever uh, don't necessarily encourage me to write to the files uh, so easily and interact with the kernel so easily. And uh, maybe if you remove that friction by making it uh, basically zero copy and uh, async, then uh, programming the way that we access these interfaces through our typical programming languages will change and the way that I write programs will change yeah I mean I, I think I'm generally pretty optimistic um, about the effect that it has I think other people that do more systems level work uh, on a day to day than I do seem excited about it and wanted to see what the hubbub was all about and looking into it, I think there's some possibility out there. I, I think because my familiarity with it isn't as comprehensive as some of our episodes, like the, these possibilities were the only ones that I could like we could come up with. But even then, like given our limited scope and understanding of, of this realm, I think we came up with things that, that seem interesting and not what people would usually talk about or think about with uh, IOU rings. So I, I would say that I'm pretty optimistic at the possibilities that, that this can unfold. 
Yeah, I guess me too. <laughs> so with that, would you say our optimism is out of this world or, or it's just in the next state? <laughs> <laughs> it's building up. It's building up. I want to see some, uh, some concrete changes that I can, I can, I want to touch this thing. And right now it's yeah. still in the level of uh, kernel hackers, but I think we might see it bubbling up pretty soon. So, and that, you, at that point, I would get super excited. Right. You, you want to see a billion-dollar company that says we're successful because we use IOU. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. That'll get everybody using it. So. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So with that, uh, our optimism is growing and uh, about to take off not already. So if this episode opened your eyes, check out our other episodes as well, where we talk about other edges of technology and why they're interesting and what future they point to. Check them out and subscribe. And so be sure to check out our audio versions on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and write us a review to help bring other technicistas on board. And with that, this is Will. And this is Shri. And we'll see you next time. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Later.